Welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Aaron Kaster. And yes, my voice is actually coming to you, uh, to you live for the first time in, th- in three weeks. We don't have a pre-record. Stefan is also live. That is true. How's everyone doing? It's good. And uh, so two co-hosts live. We have a third live body in the studio today. We have an interview uh, to uh, to get to in the middle of the program. Uh, that will be author Britt Ray, who's going to be talking to us about Rise of the Necrofauna, the Science, Ethics, and Risks of De-Extinction. Uh, we're going to ask her, among many other questions, if she's tired about uh, of the movie Jurassic Park being brought up in interviews. And we're going to do it again. Yeah. Oh, nice. About, Great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, among other topics. At the end of the program, I'm going to be talking a little bit about, well, I'll be taking point, rather, yeah. uh, uh, a little bit on... Of course, the big Energy East news. Um, my Twitter feed is full of net once I blocked all the trolls uh, jubilation. Mm. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, we're also going to do a little bit of, um, f- I don't want to say fact checking, let's say uh, narrative checking mm. on some of the media that's going out there. We'll be referencing some mainstream, art- art- uh, media- <clears throat> mainstream media articles uh, talking about some of the information they're in and also some of the issues, I would say, with some of the some of the phrasing, uh, some of the not entirely true things that keep getting repeated over and over again and drive me crazy. Uh, that will be at the end of the program. But coming up now, Stefan is going to be talking about the uh, the cost of oil production. Uh, I was also reading, although I didn't get too far into the interview uh, mm-hmm. articles you linked this week, Stefan, I have been reading a lot of other articles, so I'm, I'm looking forward to a healthy conversation. Take it away. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, and of course, you know, Energy East is the is the... I feel like the huge news of the week for environment, but also at the same time, it's one of those things that is relatively well covered from a standpoint of it. The news is it's dead. Mm. Uh, in that, and again, uh, we've always on the show talked about the, our wish for a soundboard, and mm. definitely this is one of those times. Ding like, dong, the witch is dead. Exactly, yeah. yeah Although we also on the show definitely celebrated uh, the end of Keystone XL, which of course is now uh, given has now risen from the dead, uh, which is a <laughs> which we'll learn about more in the second half. So many layers to the today's exactly, show. Exactly, yes. Um, but but this actually this story yeah, the, is a is a. It's, I, I wanted to start with it because it's it's called the price of oil, and it's this, it's 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 impre- it's interesting, I think, to me in many ways. And the first is just the sheer size of coalition that was built around reporting this story. Uh, so this was something that was a combination of the National Observer, the Toronto Star, Global News, Concordia University, Ryerson University, University of Regina, uh, the the, uh, the corporate matching project UBC, uh, and also the, the the Missioner Awards Foundation. So this is. This is some of the bigger organizations uh, surrounding um, media in this in the country all coming together to to really look at this one story. And, and it, what's interesting as well is it's a it's still ongoing. Uh, this is sort of the first opening uh, salvo, shall we say, to so to use a slightly war metaphor. Um, now I'm sure the media would not want to use the war metaphor specifically because they're not waging war against this. But they're but it's but it's important to understand the the importance of the the power and importance of, 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 of an independent press. And I think this story highlights it, especially given the, from, through the whole way. So I'm going to put that lens out there before I, before I start. And, congr- and great work done by all of these different organizations. Um, and it, it dates back five years. And good investigative reporting often does this, which also, is, which also should remind you that whenever everyone's sort of right now saying everything's okay, uh, more often than not, the truly concerning things are not, are not going to, we're not going to find out about them for, for a while. It takes work to actually dig up some of these sort of pieces. And so this is actually, it dates back to December of 2012. Um, and actually even, even, actually even two months before that, um, in, it, when a, an individual in uh, Saskatchewan got sick for, for some reason. 
Uh, and and it was one of those things where where uh, it didn't. It was sort of one of those things. It, 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 honestly, the the way that it's written, and just please go to our website after this and check all the lights because because I'm not going to come close to covering this whole story. It's 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 long, it's huge, and it's really interesting. Um, but it's it's one of these things where whenever people think about the dangers of of, of environmental poisoning, it, it actually looks like this, right? This is a story of this of this man. Um, who he's a teenager who just drove through a toxic plume of sour gas um, outside outside of this home uh, of Shirley Galloway, uh, and 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 he and he begins to scream, and so she runs out, grabs him, gets him inside, and then she just happens she happens to have sort of an air detector, and so pulls it out and discovers, and it goes off, and it's all and, and, and what they're testing for is hydrogen sulfide H two S also known as sour gas, and this is highly toxic, and and basically and it it, it, it it shortly after this it actually kills an oil worker, and so and 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 this is, and so this begins the ripple of like okay something is something might be wrong here, uh, and and two months later in December. Uh, a, a man named Brad Harold, uh, who's uh, part of the Canadian Association of Petroleum, uh, for Petroleum Producers, uh, he's operations manager, and he sends a memo to colleagues, a concerned memo. He's actively concerned. This is, you know, we spend most of this show dragging Cap for for all the different things they do, but you know, this is this is someone who actively went out and tried to be, at least raise alarm, uh, and in part because respo- in responding to this incident of this of this teenager getting sick and and the amount of toxic gas that was even outside this woman's home in. Saskatchewan. The Saskatchewan government uh, had conducted 11 random audits of oil and gas facilities, uh, many belonging to members of CAP or, or the Small Explorers and Producers Association of Canada. So CAP is sort of for the big guys, and the other, and this is one for the sort of smaller organizations. And all 11 facilities failed with serious infractions. Uh, so this is like again, randomly chose 11 places, 11 places, and every single one of them was not correctly or effectively keeping this type of oil, this this very dangerous gas, uh, in the ways it should be. And before, I'm going to jump away for half a second to to highlight the fact that this kind of thing lends and should make you rethink all the times that people are ignoring the uh, the complaints of organiza- of groups that are in the area of the of the oil sands. You know, all these organizations that are in the in this sort of realm of the oil sands who are reporting higher rates of cancer, higher rates of these different things, and everyone's sort of like, yeah, you're just like making it up. It's not really blah blah blah. These are the types of things that are actually happening, and in fi- like you know, and, and and so it's we have to be paying attention to these local communities because they are often the first alarm bells to the sort of serious and ongoing ignorance uh, or ignoring actually of of these serious issues and so this this memo goes out and uh and everyone starts scrambling and the and there's a and the, to understand how di- how dangerous this is the facilities in the area were venting h2s concentrations that may be exceeding 150,000 parts per minute this is the again. This is this is written by uh, by Harold, who is the um, who was the was the works for Cap. Um, that's a hundred and fifty times the amount that would cause instant death. So, <laughs> so a thousand parts per minute causes instant death. These these were these were these were venting concentrations that were a hundred and fifty times that. You know, it's it's unbelievably dangerous. 
and he's and he's, he goes out, he goes on to suggest that inac- inadequate operations and training may have been the cause of some of these quote unquote fugitive emissions, uh, and acknowledge that stricter regulation and compliance within CAPS membership was imperative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he sort of comes out being like, "Dudes, this is very bad. We need to act on this." And it probably is mostly dudes. Uh, yeah, probably. Let's be clear. Just so that people think we're not being inclusive. In this case, it probably. Is yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not actually. Yeah, it's, I'm much quite likely the the membership cap high up is probably certainly. Um, but so this is so. And this again, this is not. This is not a. This is not even. This is not a regulatory agency. This is not an activist group. This is someone whose job it is is to protect this consideration uh, of the the, the 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 intentions of these individuals. This is like you know. This is the most pro version of this that could be made, and so. Uh, and then this is where I, I, I this is where I, I, I it switches a little bit and why I I open this segment talking about the importance of media because he goes on to say that this has potential to become a broader industrial reputation social license concern and warns immediate attention by operators in the region. Uh, Cap commu- he goes on to say Cap Communications is preparing key messages in the event that there is a media profile. This is straight up a person from Cap saying, hey. People are dying. They will continue to die. But also, maybe the media might find out. And so we can't let it. And this looks bad. And this looks bad. And it takes, and again, this is five years ago. So when you talk about how long they successfully managed to avoid talking about this, that's kind of incredible. Mm. Uh, and so, and only now is it really, and, and uh, the second point I will make on that is that the, the fact that he uses the term social license is fascinating to me because mm. it's something that I've heard environmentalists talk a lot about. Like it's environmentalists consistently speak of whether of, about how oil has lost its social license, that oil has lost its uh, reasonability to be uh, used in our in our society. And the fact that this is a, that that language has actually permeated the CAP, the Canadian Association for Petroleum Producers, is is notable. Mm. And so, and so, this is his concern. He's he's very concerned about this, and and then and then and then from there, it 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 broad it broadens off, and and you, th- from there, sort of what's interesting about this is like there's this very peak moment, and then everything sort of just starts begins to fade back into the background again, in that you know the cap producers the and this is also going to be is, uh, should also be noted an interesting fact because it sort of goes against some believed narratives, which is that the the big oil producers who are part of cap. Uh, more were were stronger in support of of, of actually to sort of higher regulations and, and and just like let's just bring up the regulations to where they should be and we'll up, update all our stuff and go from there. Whereas the small producers uh, came out in the opposite. They came out basically being like, look, we are working on they're, they're working on smaller profit margins, and so they're coming out basically being like, eh, I think this is more of a public relations conversation than it is an emissions relation. Mm. And this is important because that's actually this that type of dynamic is was mimicked in other is mimicked. Many other places, which is that the big guns often are often will end up favoring legislation because they can make those matches and they can sort of raise their standards, and it sort of cuts out some of the smaller competition they have. So it's actually it, 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 often you'll see some of the large organizations support some of these type of safety regulations because they actually have the money to make it, and they're fine. You know, they can pay out that little bit. Whereas the sort of so often some of the most egregious. Uh, Pollution issues, like the really the really acute and and local pollution issues, are actually caused by these sort of smaller, uh, less uh, more you know less well known uh, companies that are you know it's not only oil companies that sometimes a lot of different places, but these sort of smaller ones actually end up causing higher infractions because they have a much different profit margin, mm. and so it's this ongoing 
Well, and I think that's worth noting too, because the, this is a case of in those cases, often these companies will say, "Hey, look how you know," because they'll 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 play it off both ways, mm-hmm. right? This is sort of always the story, right? Where they'll come out and say, "Look how good we're being," because we're being proactive when we're voluntarily working with the government to, you know, we're happy to do this. You know, we want to, you know, blah blah blah, and try and shine shine that up a little bit in their favor. When in reality, the reason that they're picking those specific legislations and the reason that they're that they're sort of bending so easily is because on their behind the scenes, they've done some math and it says, "Okay, well, this is going to cost us X, but we're going to make X because we knocked off a whole bunch." of our competition, right? So don't ever think that there's not a, a dollars and cents calculation happening behind the scenes where someone has calculated this is in our interest to do this. Right. There, a- nothing has ever been done in the history of oil companies because, you know what, this is the right thing to do, guys. <laughs> Never, ever, 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 ever has this happened. The, um, and, and, and so, to, so to jump off of, uh, and so what's interesting is that after that sort of faded, it, you sort of watch it get eaten by the, uh, by by conflicting interests, really, or not conflicting interests, interests to silence this, and so this is so this is going on, and it go and this is a good example of why and how this has sort of managed to be batted around and ignored for five years since it sort of came to light, or since it was first brought to the govern government's attention, um, is that one side uh, is that. Um, you have the oil industry saying uh, uh, saying things like the public is encouraged by government to contact the ministry to report interests, right? Uh, and so that's that's sort of their standard. They're like, yeah, no, they're like, yeah, we you know report us, let us know. That's for sure. That's what we should do. Uh, the government's internal memo uh, has something that says they prefer to see operators deal with public complaints without having to be involved. So both sides are now basically being like, I, we would be prefer if you talk to the other person. And then, and then the third aspect of this, uh, which is also well, well reported in this in, in, in this story, and dive into it deeper, is the element of social pressure on the people who would complain from their communities. So, like, there's three layers of silence here. So, the people the people who are in these communities who might get sick are in communities that are entirely dominated by this industry. And so, if they come out as as, as whistleblowers, they're they are they are vilified. And so, and so they're being silenced by their, by, by their immediate community. They also feel like nothing's going to happen because both sides of the issue are saying, talk to the other person. And it's, and, and, and so. The ev- technical term for that, Stefan, is the runaround. Right. And, and, but, in, and, but in, like, and the runaround is much easier when you're dealing with, you know, the, these massive industry, government, like, uh, like the Saskatchewan government and, and oil industry. Like, how hard is it to get anyone on the phone from either of those things, let alone, then if they tell you to talk to the other person, you're just being running, like, you spend three weeks going back and forth, and while the while everyone in your community is telling you to shut up anyways, like, these are not going to get reported. The check's in the mail, Stefan. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, and so this is, and, and, and what's in, in the, in the, and all the invested interest is to do nothing, right? The Saskatchewan government it has, it, in the same way that Alberta had a serious problem with this, Saskatchewan government is, is building up the same thing, which is that so much of their money comes from oil companies. So much of their money is being paid through that industry that for them, they don't have the ability, that, 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 that they, anything that would damage that would hurt their revenue. And, and they can't afford that. And so, because they've because they've made themselves reliant on these industries, they do not have the interest to properly regulate them. And so, as this has come to light, the uh, there's been obviously serious pressure on Saskatchewan government to uh, to 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 answer why nothing's been happening. Uh, it's gone as far as the as Saskatchewan's uh, f- um, uh, progressive conservative leader. 
uh, Richard Swenson, uh, has started calling. And he's again. This is again a conservative party leader in Saskatchewan. It's n- it's not Brad Wall, but it's a, it's it's another it's the, it's the progressive conservative party. Uh, called on Wall government to release all documents and industry reports concerning these leaks into in, in southeastern Saskatchewan. Um, and then and then he's he was speaking as the former industry minister. So he's he used to be actually industry minister of of, uh, uh, of Saskatchewan. And he says that. You're not the energy. You're not the minister of of oil company promotion. You're the minister of responsible. You're you're there as the minister responsible for the rational utilization of resources to the benefit of all of us. When you take that oath, that's your dual responsibility. And so this is a conservative. Again, he's got a little bit of a political lead because he's obviously still running against the Bradwell government. But this is still a conservative coming out and being like, this is not okay. And and this is is the larger conversation we need to be having about what people say when they say the price of oil. The price of oil isn't just climate emissions. It isn't just how much you actually pay at the pump. It isn't just X. It's the entire culture around it is so toxic. In part because of how much money is there and how much end up control they have over these different these different pieces, and to sort of expand it for expand the conversation to 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 a worldwide scale for for a minute before we go to break, the the important thing to remember is that this is what happens in Canada. This is what happens in a place where the government has a pretty strong regulatory muscle to flex. You know, there's a pretty strong uh, control over 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 lots of what's happening and a pretty a pretty strong. Um, you know, a mandate to govern. Imagine what is happening in the places of these countries where this is where, where where this is not the case. You know, you look at the amount of corruption that surrounds oil in Nigeria, um, or 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 often what happens in some places like Mexico and in some of the, some of the places where oil is is found in in say Venezuela, and and you begin to fully understand the. This, the scope and the gravity and the need for for regulation and for and for and for people to sort of start thinking about how much of our day to day lives are backed off uh, backed on this kind of violence, really, right? Like you know, it, it's the it's it's hard to it's it's hard to sort of use that word when it's when it feels so removed. But at the same time, like these people are dying. And, you know, an oil worker did die in Canada because of p- improper regulations and nothing happened and nothing is still happening. And all the while, Brad Wall spent the time praising the, o- the oil companies, fighting, uh, fighting climate regulations and fighting anything to get us off this truly toxic material uh, that sure is incredibly useful for many, many things. But it's still the... It's when you talk about full cost accounting, you can't just talk about climate emissions. You can't just talk about uh, you can't just talk about price. You can't just talk about you know the 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 way our cities are designed for oil. It's all of these must be taken into account along with the sort of the, the sort of real local damage that's being done on the ground in all these different places. And so I guess if I had one thing to leave, if I had one thing to leave people with. It's this concept of believe the people on the ground when they're telling you these things are happening. Don't wait five years for an investigative report. Like This is an incredible thing, but if every single crisis we wait five years to have a thing about and then we all talk about it for, for 15 minutes and then they go on doing the same thing, we're never going to get better. Uh, and so, and so it's just, it's, it's, it's incredible. Please do go on the National Observer, Globe and, uh, not the Globe Mail, the Star and, uh, Global, Global, Global News. And they are all covering it in different ways. And it's this ongoing, it's still building on the report. So it's, it's, and there's, there's more there. So please go to the website, check it all out. Uh, cause it's, it's, 
it's not only it's not only fascinating it's great reporting there's some great interesting pieces like in it because it touches a huge swath and really does a great job of showing the power that oil has within this country uh and 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 then that is is important in itself Mm, thank you very much stefan i uh out of courtesy uh to you because i know you had a lot you wanted to say today i've saved at least 95 percent of my sarcastic comments oh thank you uh i will be moving those to the end of the program so don't worry that any listeners that were looking forward to my sarcastic comments they will still be included at the end of the show (laughs) uh we're going to take a break now megan will tell us what our music break is but coming back after the break we have Britt ray who's going to be uh the author of uh, rise of the necrofauna the science ethics and de-risks of de-extinction uh right after this music break i'm very looking very much forward to that conversation uh mostly because it is uh, very interesting to me and I know almost nothing about it which is the apex of an interesting interview to me anyway and I hope the listeners enjoy it too but mostly I'm going to be fascinated Uh, we'll be right back Uh, Megan please let us know what we're going to listen to All right, we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. Uh, I am your host, uh, Saren Kaster. Stefan is also in the studio, and uh, we're also going to be speaking right now to Britt Ray, who's the author of Rise of the Necrofauna. Thank you for joining us, and welcome to the program, Britt. Hey, thanks for having me. So uh, this is a so my first question, which I was obviously I said as a joke, but now I feel obligated. Um, how often, in, or rather, here's a better way to ask this question. Have you ever been asked about this book and not had Jurassic Park come up? No. Great. Well, I'm glad I didn't want to ruin the streak so that you're welcome. Um, can you, you. Um, maybe you're going to do a much better job than me, I'm sure. So let's just spare the audience my attempt. Can you please give us just a brief overview of the topic? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe I'll begin with the Jurassic Park idea. Okay. It's absolutely understandable why this reference point comes up every single time that I talk about de-extinction with anyone. De-extinction raises the possibility of bringing close versions of extinct species back to life. Not identical carbon copies, but facsimiles that we can make mimic the extinct species, and I can discuss why. Mm -hmm. But there's a variety of projects underway now in a handful of labs around the world to try and recreate Close versions of animals like the woolly mammoth, the passenger pigeon, the aurochs, Tasmanian tiger, heath hen, gastric brooding frog, the list goes on. Mm. And the idea is put forth that this could do something beneficial for ecosystems that are currently failing. They've lost some of their important functional productivity since a particular species known as a keystone species, one that played a really vital role in an ecosystem, disappeared. So if we can cobble together the bits of an extinct organism in a new organism that can then mimic what that extinct organism did, potentially we could resuscitate some of that productivity that's been lost. Mm. Now, of course, there's there's a lot of uh, details here and there's also a lot of uh, people have a lot of images in their mind um, and that's specifically around what the technology actually does and the first thing that popped into my mind aside from Jurassic Park obviously was we we're I was about to say we're just finished but we're not even quite finished with but we're still sort of uh, I think hopefully over the median uh, on the just general public debate around things like stem cell research which is uh, I would say several levels below the uh, you know general populative uh, moral outrage of just you know science that sounds scary and new. Um, and that where I want to start with that, though, is that at the very beginning of the book, one of the things that's talked about is all the different names of the companies that are working on this. I think because a lot of people who are working on this understand that they're, the image and the, the vision in the public's mind, but when they think about this, I think it's very, very important. Um, so can you, can you talk a little bit about, um, before we get into the specifics of what the technology actually does and, and what people want to do with it and where it is, 
just around that public sort of impression point around um, the the how how people are talking about this, how people are talking to to governments about this, how it's sort of being discussed at this point as far as the technology, with that eye that um, that some people are going to be very very uncomfortable with this technology just as a as a concept. So there is an organization called Revive and Restore, and they're a nonprofit that's dedicated to advancing what they call genetic rescue of extinct species and endangered species. Under that umbrella falls de-extinction, where you can recreate close versions of the extinct animals that we have interest to bring back. They aren't a company, they're a nonprofit, but what they are trying to do is galvanize research and talent for the researchers that are interested in doing this to push their projects forward, as well as then create these opportunities for public engagement. And Stuart Brand, who is the co-founder of that organization, he's a fairly famous futurist from the Bay Area. He coined the term personal computer. He used to run around with Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters. He's such a vital part of what has come out of West Coast tech life. And he says, you know, what allowed Jurassic Park to become this horrible story that warns us of our hubris and the unintended consequences that could come forth if we just try and bend nature into the shapes we like is all of this corporate greed. But what we're trying to do is conservation, and no one gets rich off of conservation. We're trying to do something beneficial for ecosystems, and we have a lot of time to slowly deliberate that before any of these animals end up in our backyard or zoos. And that's another point, is that Animals will probably live in captivity that are produced by de-extinction, at least for part of their lifetimes, if not all. And that can create ethical issues to explore. Right. Ian Malcolm's favorite line, if we were, if scientists were so concerned about if it was seeing if we could do something, we never stopped to think that if we should. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So now, in order to advance the science to the degree that they would like as funders and collectors of donation, they are starting to make industrial partnerships with biotech labs to speed it up from this slow pace of academic research that currently houses a lot of the research projects. For example, the woolly mammoth is being explored at Harvard Medical School. The passenger pigeon has been worked on the last several years at UC Santa Cruz, and there's a variety of others. But in order to produce animals in parallel that can get over the technological obstacles to make them and produce enough so that they're not just these scientific oddities that live in a lab but can actually produce a population that could potentially be rewilded because, remember, the point for people who advocate the science is to get them into ecosystems in order to do something functional there, not just to allow us to gawk at them and learn from them behind the bars of a zoo. Mm. We need to make many. We need to make a viable population that can eventually manage themselves without humans. So for that, now the work is in place to try and make some partnerships to speed it up. Well, I know, uh, I mean, we just sort of referenced a minute ago that within the general population, there might be some uh, some uneasy feelings about this. I'm, I'm actually predicting that even within our audience, there's going to be a range of sort of feelings about uh, this type of technology. Uh, that being said, I think usually, in my experience, the best way to get people comfortable with something, if it's possible, is to explain to them how it works. So can we talk a little bit about what, what we're actually talking about doing here uh, to the finest degree of specificity we can do without needing a degree? Yeah. <laughs> Fun. Okay, sure. So there are three main avenues to do de-extinction. The first is backbreeding, and this is the lo-fi version, if you will. So you know how we bred dogs from wolves through artificial selection, just choosing the traits in the wolves that we liked and crossing them together over successive generations until we get a uh, Fido that we want to keep around, and then we breed that kind. What you can do if there is an extinct animal that is no longer here, however all of its descendants are, 
then theoretically its genome is scattered across the living descendants in certain ways. So then you can pick the individuals that look like that extinct ancestor and cross them together. This is what's happening with the aurochs, which is the extinct ancestor of all of today's living cattle lines. And so presumably the genes are still on Earth, just divided up. So by selecting the right cattle in terms of the horn size and shape and the coloration and the sexual dimorphism, meaning just how the males and females look different from one another, and then bringing those together, you can breed backwards in time to create that trait in the cow that you want. Then there is something that most of us are familiar with, which is cloning, because, you know, we've had blockbuster famous clones come into the world, such as Dolly the Sheep, that got us warmed up to this idea back in the 90s. And we do it a lot, especially with livestock today, and even people clone their dead pets sometimes. So here, there's a process used called somatic cell nuclear transfer. What that involves is taking a a body cell of the animal you want to clone, and if it's an extinct animal, you need to make sure that that material has been frozen before it died, so it's perfectly intact, and then you can thaw it. When you then take that cell, you can remove the nucleus, which is the large sac in the middle that contains most of its DNA, the nuclear genome, and you take an egg cell from its closest living relative. So de-extinction did happen once with a bucardo, also known as the Pyrenean ibex. It's a type of mountain goat that lived in the Spanish Pyrenean mountain range. And there, after the last one died, they had already, um, thankfully before it disappeared, frozen some cells, yank out the nucleus, then take a donated egg cell from a related living goat, remove its native nucleus, import the nucleus from the clone, the dead clone, and then you can stimulate it to start dividing with an electroshock and implant it in the uterus of a surrogate mother, another type of goat, for example. And this eventually, after a lot of failure, most of the time, will produce a clone. It took over 277 attempts, I believe, with Dolly the sheep. And there were similarly many, many, many attempts with the Bucardo in order to finally produce seven pregnancies, of which only one of them took. And then a clone was born that lived 10 minutes and died because it suffered a deformity on its lung that prevented it from living properly. And this is one of the ethical issues to talk about when it comes to cloning and de-extinction is animal welfare, how much death and failure happens that we mask over in order to finally talk about a success. Then lastly, we've got gene editing, a.k.a. genome engineering. And now scientists have a variety of really sophisticated tools for going into the genetic script of an organism and locating a very particular place in its genetic code and cutting it with for example, CRISPR-Cas9, which is a tool that people are really excited about now, because since 2012, scientists have realized how to take this immune system from simple microbes and target it to any DNA that they like, which will cut it and also insert genetic changes on demand. So it becomes a scalpel for genetic surgery, if you will. powered by enzymes that you can direct to a certain point in the DNA. And then you can, if you take, for example, an Asian elephant's cell, you can make woolly mammoth-specific genetic changes in it because we've got the assembled ancient genome of the woolly mammoth. We know how it reads out. Similarly, we have that of the living elephant. So then one by one, you can make the genetic tweaks so that the living genome of the elephant starts to resemble at the basis of its code, the woolly mammoth, until you're satisfied that you've got all the genes you want in there. And again, implant in a surrogate mother where it will grow into your de-extincted organism or potentially even an artificial womb, which is technology that's being developed currently for the Woolly Mammoth Project.
Mm. So this, it's definitely uh, ranges. And it actually, while you were describing that, it reminded me a little bit of the conversations we've had on this program about uh, GMO foods, which is that, and, and, and specifically the thing I'm referring to in that, in this case, although there's, there's many parallels, um, was that the, the sort of gross, most common misunderstanding, which is that when we're talking about a thing with a single label, that we actually mean a suite of technologies as a, as opposed to a single one. So I think I'm very happy that you, you did such a good job sort of laying out the different types of things that people are, are doing. So we, we've at least given people a, a vague understanding of the different types of things we might be talking about. We've, we've at the very minimum, acknowledged some of the uh, ethical implications, although I'm happy to, to come back to that as well, because I think that's very, very important. Um, but maybe we can now, um, the sort of final thing to get people in their mind about, okay, well, what's actually being done on this, I think, is now the applied. And so the applied would be, okay, say we have this animal, we have a population of animals, how, do's, how does this actually get put back into the wild? Because uh, particularly if we're talking about a keystone species, obviously, in, in many cases, some or all of the rest of that ecosystem that would have existed is now at least different, if not non-existent. So what are the logistics about actually, we have the population, what are the logistics of actually um, putting this back into nature uh, that need to be thought about? Right, it's a great question. With the passenger pigeon, for example, this is a species that used to flock in the billions. It's hard for us to fathom now that we ever interacted as a species with this avian species that would darken the skies for 14 hours at a time as a single flock would fly overhead. You know, we hunted them to extinction in less than 50 years because they were so easy to catch. We could shoot one bullet up in the sky and anywhere between 25 to 99 birds would drop down. And they flew over Toronto. (laughs) So that's an interesting case. Why would we want to get them back in such large numbers? And how would we possibly do it when the forests have changed since they left? Well, Ben Novak, the scientist who's working on recreating a close version of this bird to repopulate eastern North American forests with, would, in his ideal version of how this would go, get, you know, many thousands of birds. It would be very difficult to get to a billion very quickly. Um, And you would have them in a hatchery. And then you would have what's called a soft release. So when you think that they're strong enough, healthy enough to start introducing into the wild, you can cordon off an area where you will then start to subject them to natural things in the environment that they would encounter if they were on their own, such as different predators, pathogens, microbes, other species. And then you can just see, how do they fare? Can they do this without deep human intervention? And if that looks good, then you can actually fly pigeons from location to location. There are pigeon fanciers, as they're called, that already do this with currently existing species of pigeons. So he has groups of people who have volunteered set up in different places from Mexico up to Canada and across the states that would like to fly these flocks back and forth to see how they do in terms of learning those migration patterns. And then eventually, if all of that, after, let's say, another five to ten years of monitoring looks okay, the idea would be release them fully and don't keep them any in any kind of hatchery at, at any other point past that. Mm. So I'm, I, I wish we had more time because I'm actually, as I said, I was very, very interested in this topic. And I think there's a lot, I think a lot of our listeners are still have a lot of questions in their mind, but unfortunately we, we only have a limited time. So we'll have to leave it there. Uh, I did want to, uh, I'll ask you, I have one final question before we go, but I also wanted to take an opportunity because uh, I'm listening to you now. And, and as I've been asking you the questions, you've been, you've been so great uh, as far as um, just having such a good wealth of knowledge at your fingertips. Um, I also wanted to acknowledge, though, from a sort of a reading point of view, that when you're reading the book, uh, you've sounded very much the 
expert, and we're th very thankful for that. But when I was reading the book, I actually I also noticed, in addition to all that great information that was packed in and such a such a deep understanding of the topic, um, that you also sort of it was also written very much almost as a narrative, and it was sort of at least in the in the first few chapters very much the story of you discovering this stuff as well. Uh, and so I wanted to let people know if they're interested in in checking out the book as well that it was uh, I found I found it to be very very accessible. Oh, thank uh, you. And to and to give that, and so you, you will learn a lot. And there's and the you know I have. Uh, a very generalized science knowledge, which is that I'm exp expert in nothing, but I know what a lot of the words mean, that kind of level of like science knowledge. And I felt that I was learning a lot, but I at no point uh, felt like it was like going over my head or anything like that. So if this is a topic that interests you, especially I think if you're someone who um, were maybe feeling some of the stronger pull towards some of those ethical questions, I would say, you know, at the very least, have a, have a look through. Uh, Britt, we've very much uh, enjoyed your time here. We have one minute and I want to ask you something fun, which is... Mm -hmm. Because that's really all we have time for anyway. Cool. Uh, which was, uh, what was the most ridiculous uh, Jurassic Park reference someone has brought up speaking to you about this book? Or what was the most notable eye-rolling moment or anything having to do with somebody asking you about Jurassic Park? Well, people just don't seem to believe that it's not possible. Sometimes they forget that <laughs> I've given the whole explanation about why Jurassic Park is impossible. They've been gone for nearly 66 million years. And that means that their DNA is so degraded we can never salvage it, even when we try to get it out of the belly of a bug that's been encased in amber, which people have tried. And then it just sticks in our mind. It's such a powerful story. It's like, yeah, but then the dinosaurs are going to happen and we're going to use frog DNA, right? And people do <laughs> think that we're going to use frog DNA to splice some of these other animals back to life, which is what Michael Crichton told us, but that's wrong. Right. If you got a dollar every time someone said the word Jurassic Park, can you imagine? Anyway, thank you so much for your time, Britt thank Ray. Thank you. Uh, again, the author of Rise of the Necrofauna, The Science, Ethics, and Risks of De-Extinction. Uh, I'm sure available at fine bookstores everywhere. And we'll have a link uh, to uh, an article or two about uh, the book on the website as well, so you can check that out at greenmajority.ca. Uh, you're, of course, listening to us here live on CIUT 89.5 FM. If you're in Toronto, if you're not, you could be listening on the podcast, uh, or, which can be found also at greenmajority.ca or on one of our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners all across the country in the United States internationally as well. Uh, we've been getting email from overseas occasionally, uh, <laughs> more and more recently as well. So email us. We love questions. Yeah. And as long as you're polite, you'll get a, Actually, that's a lie. I respond to even rude emails. <laughs> Until I get overwhelmed, I respond to all emails. Uh, but just to be warned, you will get what you send hmm. in return. That's that's fair. Is that fair? That seems reasonable. All right. So we're going to go back to Megan, who's going to tell us what our second final music break will be. And then I will be back to probably make a lot more sarcastic comments than Stefan did about my new section, which is about the downfall of Energy East. Stay tuned. All right, we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, as par just before the music break. Same host. We didn't change anything. Saren's still here. Mm -hmm. And uh, Stefan is also still here. Yes, I am. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Energy East, but partially due to the fact that I'm both really happy about the news story, but anytime something like this happens, I also get this like raging urge to like correct all the nonsense from <laughs> right-wing media outlets. Um, I'm in sort of a middle place. So, Stefan, you're going to help me out a little bit here with some of the details. But uh, basically, uh, TransCanada announced, I believe, last night, if that's correct. I woke up to this morning to the news. Yes. So at some so point. At some point late last evening, there was a board meeting somewhere, and uh, uh, TransCanada decided to pull the plug on its Energy East application. Um, the quick version, and we'll, Stefan will hopefully help me go through some of the details here, but basically I would like to draw a note back all the way back to a previous National Observer story uh, with, you're going to help me with the name because I'm blanking. The 
national. The author of the oh Mike D'Souza, Mike D'Souza, who uh, wrote a story essentially revealing a link uh, between uh, someone on the National Energy Board and um, an oil company. This resulted. This is a whole long story, so we're just going to skim through it. Essentially, what happened was there, the link was revealed. This person stepped down because of the step down. There was a big kerfuffle about associations generally between the NEB, who appointed them, uh, how independent were they? This continued to this story continued to be followed. More and more pressure mounted on the NEB to be reformed. So there were some there were some people uh, some changes on who was actually on the board step down a new board comes up uh trudeau works uh, has some influence there i imagine i don't know exactly how he directly he was involved but basically a new standard that is now going to take at least some climate change impacts was brought on board and then uh about a year roughly later uh they decided uh for unspecified reasons that were economic only, they assure us, uh, and I'm fine with believing them. Well, no, they, they um, actually no. They came out and said they said it was because of the climate test. They said they said, they said the climate. Well, they they said that it that that was the they're they're blame they're they're obviously framing this as blaming the Trudeau government for well, no, for killing. Yes, it. of course. No, but what I what I meant was that they've been very clear about saying this was an economic decision. Not to say that it's not because oh, of the, I, I see. the, the, the thing, the, but the, it's not like a moral the decision that they're making. Yes, right, we right. want to make sure that no one is confused that we're doing this for the right reason, right. <laughs> that we're definitely doing this for the pouty stamp our feet right. bad reason. So to, 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 just to jump to give a bit of uh, exact specifics to the sort of the, the, the overview to Sid. Specificity away, Sid. Yeah. Um, and also to, to really highlight that, again, this is, this, is the, this is the importance of this kind of journalism. Uh, it was it was the National Observer had revealed that NEB panel members had met privately with with stakeholders, including the Quebec Premier uh, Jean Charest, to discuss the project, despite its own rules that require it to conduct reviews in open, fair manner. So they had started meeting people who are in you know who are interested in this around and outside of their outside of their actual conversations that they should be having in the light of day, and and sort of and that snowballed into yeah into the into the it you know it was. It's not as exactly as if the NAB, the National Energy Board, has had a ton of uh, legitimacy within within the people who pay. Who, almost anyone who knows what the National Energy Board is either are environmentalists who see it as a rubber stamping place, um, or as uh, or from. Um, regulators or some, or from industry who see it as a you know a, a, a nuisance shall we say and and so and so it's not like it really had a ton of um, clout to begin with but this sort of that this was a real this this article that came out this, this journalism that was done really sort of did another another poke in its uh, in its side of of no they're not even having the conversations they're pretending they're having and and then and, and and so yeah and so then led to this led to the it was a part of this ongoing effort to then yeah suspended it delayed it some more which then allowed enough time for to go by for the new rules came by so the energy was going to have have to do the climate test and we had this conversation a couple of weeks ago about when it was suspended because they they temporarily had put a hold on it a couple of weeks ago and everyone was like oh will this mean they actually pull it or not we don't know and, and they did eventually pull it so this is we've been talking about this for a little bit but the the other part I want to frame here is that. We've been talking about this sort of dynamic of like what a downstream energy test, even a downstream climate impact means for pipelines for a while, which is that you either just accept that climate change is a thing or you or you or, or you don't let pipelines through. Right. Like that's the basically the two things here. You know, the you either accept that the amount of oil that's pumped out is like a, a like you can't understand the series of climate change, understand all the science, understand how much oil that this would create and then be like, this is cool. Right. You just can't. You just can't do that. So the the addition of uh, the addition of of adding this climate test really 
put the NEB in a difficult scenario to approve this, uh, to approve the pipeline. And right. and the regulators knew that. Arizona regulators, the, the the industry knew that. Trans well, there's knew that. and there's enough chummy chumminess over there that I would that I would imagine that it's possible. I'm not saying this happened. I'm saying this could have happened. Uh, was that there was some degree of hey, can you guys please pull this because it's really going to look much worse if we tell you you can't have it and you're not going to have it because there's no way we can make this work with these new rules we have to enforce. And it's going to look better for everybody if you voluntarily pull it. Not saying that's what happened. I'm saying that's likely what happened, in my opinion. Uh, but I think two other things really quickly on that. One um, one uh, is just the fact that I, from just from the Green Majority account just seconds ago, tweeted, thank you, Mike D'Souza, National Observer, for helping kill Energy East. Feel free to like and retweet that one tweet, not because I want it, but because I want to make sure that, that they get the credit they deserve. They did play a role, and they played a role because they did journalism, yeah. uh, not because they were activists, not because they, they had a, an axe to grind, but because they talked about a story that wasn't being talked about. They did actual journalism by doing actual research that it is, in fact, in the public interest. And my second point is why this is in the public interest. Contrary to uh, a sea of online trolls of uninformed people or partisans, uh, this is not, and, and I actually bristle a little bit at us, it's a year ago old anyway, but there, the CBC article that we were looking at for background on this, uh, it was sort of supposed to be a, like a neutral primer, and CBC always does a great job, and I think they try really hard, frankly, and a lot of the time to try and sort of not be partisan, and, and but it not being partisan, there's a few different ways you can do that, and sort of calling everything neutral is not the way to do that. And so one of the titles that really just that I want to acknowledge now, because even though the article's a year old, it's still what you're hearing today on Twitter and Facebook, all over social media, and in most of the news articles about this topic, uh, is that this was a story of economy versus the environment, which is wrong, 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 wrong. <laughs> and here's why, because you don't have to take my word for it. Mm. Uh, is because uh, th there's a number of factors. First of all, climate change has a real cost. Those numbers are not ever included in any of these conversations. Thankfully, they were finally included in the in the review. But the cost of climate change is not being built into the economic cost. So as soon as you do that, you can do that one calculation that immediately wipes out the pipelines. Okay, well let's talk about uh, if we you know let's pretend that that didn't exist. Okay. These pipelines are built to be built over 40 years. It might be 50 years, it might be 60 years, it might be 35 years, but the numbers are relevant. The point is about 40 years, these pipelines are done and you do something in the same way that you do when you lease a house or you have a mortgage, you amortize the value over the life of the product. Same thing as when any business buys any piece of infrastructure. Any of you managers of departments uh, understand that when you make a, a hardware purchase, that the uh, cost uh, is done. Do I need this piece of equipment? How long is it gonna last? How much money, how much utility am I gonna get out of it? You, everyone, anyone in any position of making investments for a business has had to do this math before. Well, this math was not being done on the case of the pipelines because uh, there's no way that the you can assume steady or increasing oil revenue over the next 40 years, which means that all of the calculations of the actual value to the Canadian people was being misrepresented. And here's why they got away with misrepresenting it, because there's a real some of these numbers are really hard to pin down. How much exactly money will Canada have to spend on climate change? It's unclear. But what was happening was they were saying, okay, well, because we can't come up with a firm number, this is the same thing that comes up with the, the climate change itself, having to do with the temp, you know, parts per million equaling a certain amount of degrees in the temperature. Well, because, you can't give, because you're giving me a range, because you're not giving me a specific number, I don't know who to trust. Therefore, I'm just going to ignore the number entirely. That's like me saying to you, Stefan, that a bus ride downtown to get to work is going to cost somewhere between $1 and $1,000. And you saying, well, okay, because you can't give me a specific number, I'm just going to pretend it's free. I'm not going to include that cost in my assessment on my budget for that day. 
Well, yes, I'm, I understand that it's very difficult that I can't give you an exact number, but there is a cost, and it's between one and a thousand dollars. And this math is never ever being included. This doesn't include any of the downstream effects, any of the government, uh, any of the money that we're going to pay for the uh, families of people, for instance, who are killed by sour gas explosions, any of the accidents, any of the damage to our natural systems, the amount of extra water filtering we're going to have to do because our lakes and rivers have been polluted, uh, or the fact that we now don't have other natural resources. Never mind the economic costs of the fact that when they talk about uh, economy versus environment, they're pretending that if we don't build this pipeline, none of those people can possibly have jobs in other sectors. What is the value of those jobs? How much money is actually being lost? If maybe they go down from $40 an hour to $30 an hour in a different industry, okay, well, that's not a loss of $40 an hour. That's a difference of 10, right? So all there's all this math that is being completely misrepresented. And so I just, my, my point today, aside from the fact that Hooray Energy East is dead, one of them is don't let your guard down because don't think for a second they don't have a backup plan for well, starters. The, the backup plan is our, the backup plan is already approved. That's the thing. Right. The, like the part of the reason why they were able to let energies go through was because was because uh, KXL uh, has now been approved by the Trump government. Like, and that fight is still ongoing. But again, we've you know we've sounded enough alarms, or the celebrations that have been then taken back later in victory to to fully accept any of these victories as as fine as, as right. anything but this. Finance. This is a lost battle, not a lost war, as far as the oil companies are concerned. Yeah. Right. So this this isn't universal victory. I'm not saying not to enjoy it. Oh yeah, celebrate every been, win. Celebrate every win. We've, you got we've been accused of that, and and I don't want to take that away from people. But just but just don't be fooled that this is like haha, we win. It's like totally, we won a battle, and we we should congratulate ourselves. Yeah. But no, no disarmament just yet, folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, metaphorically speaking, of, of course. course, I feel the need to to add that uh, in At light of recent events climate, yeah. and ge- in, and just generally anyway. Yeah. Uh, but my other point as well was that don't think for a second that there's actually a business case for these pipelines because there's not. There isn't when you actually even even some other uh, environment folks that we've had on, even some guests who will not be named because they're not here to defend themselves mm. I've had on this program and say, okay, well, you know, there is really, you know, w- there is some costs that aren't being accounted, but, you know, it's not cut and dry. Well, yeah, it is cut and dry. It's cut and dry because, like, there's, I can drown people in costs that are not being counted, and any and any two or three of them can be added up to equate it. And here's the last part, and this is the last one that I really want to emphasize because I know we just have a couple minutes left, and I want to let Stefan have the last word today, mm-hmm. um, is that this is the one that is the most important, and it has been my hobby horse for a year, Ben, now, but uh, this is the time to remind people, this is an opportune time to remind people, all of those skills that go into those industry, those people who are currently losing jobs in the oil industry, every single one of those job types, uh, it, whether you're a secretary or a pipe fill, uh, fitter or a driller or any of these other, uh, any of the other skills, all of those skills are required by renewable energy. China, a massive import, 2 billion cars, uh, something like that last year is is on track to ban gas cars. Many other countries are following suit. Never mind what the American doing. Americans are doing. There is no way that the majority of people are going to be driving gas vehicles by 2040. It's just not going to happen, right? Because what happens is, and you say, okay, well that's China. Yeah, but China buys a lot of cars. And what's happening even within the first week after China made that announcement was that a bunch of other car companies have now also announced that they're planning to end the production of fossil fuel cars by set dates. This has started the monopoly, the the dominoes have already started to fall. The end of oil as far as a consumer product, because people are not going to build around oil, is coming. Now, does that mean we're going to not have it tomorrow? No. Does that mean we're not going to have oil in 2050? No. Does that mean there won't be any oil cars in 2050? 40 or 2050 or 2060. No, but it does mean that making a massive long-term investment around something that's that's already falling away is foolish even before you get to the math and the math backs it up anyway. Last word is Stefan's. Well, yeah, to jump off that, there's there's a lot of conversations right now about about 
companies go or countries going to moving on uh, moving off of gas vehicles and as much as there are other things that use oil and gas obviously cars are the number one use it a vast percentage of the oil goes to them and so and again the other thing about this is that actual usage rates of of of, of gas uh is 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 sort of stagnating in a lot of in a lot of a lot of countries and again the, the the pitch from these oil companies over and over again has been that the chinese market will and indian market will grow enough to make this possible and so it's not even just it's not even just that it's the question should be will we sort of stagnate uh it's that these oil companies themselves are staking themselves on a business proposition that that are are being slowly informed are not are not going to be there when and, it's not and, the it's Sorry, and dangerous. it's not that it's being foolish. This is the really important part. This is part of a strategy because they know that if they get the pipeline, they're locking the Canadian government into backing up the thing that they funded and 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 have invested in into that course. So if they lose these pipelines, it's not just that we don't have the pipelines, that not having the pipelines will help accelerate these other transitions. And having the pipelines gets the Canadian people and the Canadian government and thereby the Canadian people on the hook to also stick with it. Yeah. Right. So it's not like the pipelines are independent from the rest of policy. Once you make that investment, it then does actually make sense to make these other investments continuing down that path. Without it, it doesn't. Right. So they understand that they're not. It's not that they're stupid and that they don't understand the math that I'm talking about. They do. And they understand what the impact of that investment means as far as grinding all of Canada onto that onto that trajectory for the near future because of that investment yeah and so and so to again as we as we close up i'm gonna i'm gonna slightly switch gears or move on to the que- next question okay energy east is gone uh what is what are we paying attention to now what should if you're if you're a, a climate activist where are you going and i think the first answer obviously has to be kinder morgan's trans mountain pipeline you know kinder morgan was one of the one of the one of the most controversial pipelines uh, and also one of the ones that was approved by the Trudeau government. And now now they're facing, again, it's, it's a great time for this because they're facing some serious opposition both uh, in the courts. There are currently seven uh, First Nations groups that are challenging the federal approval of Kinder Morgan um, in, uh, in court in Vancouver this week. And there's also, uh, there's also the new NDP government has come in and been very sort of wishy-washy against it. They, 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 they were definitely ran against it originally and they are held up by the Greens who staunchly ran against it. And so the question of whether or not they actually have the power to stop the, to stop the pipeline remains in, up in the air. But there's a lot, it's, it's, much shaky, it's on much shakier ground than it was when it was approved uh, by Trudeau. And so if, this is, if Energy East is, is, is the first duck down, I think the second one has to be Kinder Morgan. And so uh, if you're wondering what you should do in the next little while, maybe shift over and pay attention to the Tsleil-Waututh and the, the people fighting Kinder Morgan because they can right. use your help. Uh, celebrate, have a uh, uh, organic beer, enjoy the Thanksgiving weekend, spend some time with your family. Tuesday morning, we'll see you on the West Coast. <laughs> all right. <laughs> That's all the time we have for. Thank you so much for listening to The Green Majority. Check out the website, greenmajority.ca, for all the links. Other than that, have a good green week, folks, and we'll see you all real soon. 